The word of God, as it's delivered to us through the prophets, takes upon several differing mechanisms of communication. Just to give you some examples and further explanation of what I mean. Zechariah, for example, communicates largely by reporting visions given to him by God. He'll write of, say, lifting up his eyes and seeing a man with a measuring line. And then he'll report to us what he sees that man doing. And since prophetic visions usually come with the audio, he'll describe for us as well what he hears. And sometimes, as in the case with prophetic visions like that, we'll also have recorded an angel's explanation of what the vision means. Other times, as another example, God will direct a prophet to engage in some symbolic action, a symbolic action that conveys a greater meaning. Ezekiel performs a lot of different actions at God's direction when we read his prophecy. One time, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 37, we find God telling the prophet to take two sticks to ride on them and hold them together to symbolize what it would be like to have a reunified Jewish kingdom. The prophet Amos, he writes giving us yet another style. Amos writes in part, in part of his prophecy by describing what could be thought of as a, a prosecution of a lawsuit. God summons his people. God calls forth the witnesses. He lays forth his, his accusation and then he ends with his sentence. And there are, are many different manners of communications that come to us through the prophets which reveal to readers the will of God. In Malachi, the prophet we started reading last week, the mechanism of his communication largely takes the form of a disputation. That's a word I used last week, disputation, when we began this prophetic work. But I didn't explain all that much about the word back then, and I want to explain it with a little more detail now before we read on in Malachi chapter 1 today. Really, we, we all sort of already know what a disputation is, even if we have never used the word or if we've only used it infrequently. Children, you know what a disputation is, and I know you know what it is because I'm sure you've been in one before. Your brother or your sister or a friend might have started playing with a toy you had first or reading a book that you had been eyeing. And so you start talking between the two of you about who has the better claim on the toy. That conversation, hopefully a reasoned and gentle conversation, is a type of dispute. And the word spoken between you as siblings or as friends, therefore, is a disputation. And adults, well, they have disputations too. Husbands and wives might dispute over what movie to go see. Two employees may dispute over how to handle a particular problem at work. A disputation is really any conversation where there are two opposing sides being presented. And that's the way Malachi largely writes. He gives the words of one party and the response of the other party. When we began looking at Malachi last week, we read as early as the second verse, a disputation 
which found one party saying, I have loved you. And then the other party, or in this case, parties, well, they responded by saying, how have you loved us? The first party speaks, the second party responds, and so it goes. But what makes the disputations of Malachi so different from anything we have more commonly experienced is that when Malachi presents these disputations, one of the parties is the only true God. It was God who was telling Israel in Malachi, 1, chapter, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. And it was Israel responding back, how? And from the context, that responsive question, how, was not just asking God to remind his readers of, their, of his love. The asking of how was really an impudent response, as if to question whether God really did love. And though I have described this disputation as a two-party conversation, on another level, it really isn't. You see, only God is really speaking here. God is speaking his truth. He says what he says. He gives what he knows to be the response then of the people. He says his words. He says the people's response. God says, I have loved you. And then he himself says, but you say, how have you loved me? In other words, God is putting words into the prophet's mouth that are really the corporate people of God, the corporate people of God responding as we read Malachi. And because it's God's words, that means that the response that we hear, there, we find in it that there are no hidden true feelings. What God writes is truly what the people are thinking. And this form of disputation will go on as we read on, and the words, but you say will constantly be coming up. Those words, but you say, will serve as a marker to signify the response that comes from God's people in reply to God's words to them. And though I don't really think this needs to be said, when we read those words, but you say, what we should know is that what we are about to read, what is about to follow, is not only a true response, but it's also a wrong response. A wrong response coming from the people of God. You see, what's happening in this disputation is that God, in a loving, in a corrective way, is exposing wrong attitudes and wrong actions so that people will know their wrongs and be directed to what is right. And even more, to be directed to see the great need they have for Jesus Christ. Please keep all of that in mind as we read the remainder of Malachi chapter 1, Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14, 6 to the end of the chapter. Let's pray and then we'll read. Our Father, as we come to this text today, as we see you interact with your people, Remind us that we are your people. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what it is that you require of us. And Lord, 
as we encounter your word, we ask that you would correct any error you find within. Make it so that we are more faithful worshipers of you. Change us by your word. Transform us into the people you would have us be. Mold us, Lord. And we will glorify you for the work you do in us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. I mentioned those types of disputes we as people might have before we read this passage. I did that so that we might see better the literary structure to the way Malachi writes. 
One party to the dispute speaks, the other party replies, addressing what had been previously said. But that example of human interactions is only valid to describe the literary structure and nothing else. Our human disputations, you see, are marked on both sides of the conversation with human imperfections and sin. Our human disputations are often marked by selfishness and defensiveness and impure motives. But God's side of a dispute with his people is always just, always holy, always righteous. And equally true, God's assessment of his people is always spot on. It's perfect. He knows his creatures better than they know themselves. And I really think that knowing that all of the perfections of God are embodied in what he says should also remind us that his mercy is also here in this text. God is critiquing his people's actions. He speaks harshly against their thoughts. But he mercifully does that for their good. His perfect judgment against human wrongs could justly be poured out in holy wrath as opposed to corrective critique. But his critique, his critique enables people to adjust their wrong thoughts, to change their errant deeds, and even more than that, direct them to Jesus Christ. And I say that even recognizing that Malachi was written a few centuries before the coming of Jesus incarnate. Malachi very much was serving to point Old Testament readers forward to that first coming of Jesus. We'll see that even more, I trust, the further we will read on. But first, what we're seeing is God's critical appraisal of his people. And here it is a criticism being delivered in regard to their worship. You can see from what we have read that the error of the people of God in Malachi's day involved flawed sacrifices being brought into the temple to be offered by the priest. But the problem really has a deeper root than might be observable in the giving of sacrifices. You see, the real problem, the real problem is one of heart. There is some problem within prompting a people to treat God as if he's less than the best, bringing to God polluted sacrifice, animals that are damaged and sick and lame is treating God as less than God, treating him as if he's nothing more than a pagan image carved out of wood. But that is action that's first caused from within the heart and soul. And you have to ask, you have to ask, why would God's people really give to God less than the best if they truly, truly in heart understood who God was? At the very beginning of our reading, the prophet speaks God's words and articulates some principles he seems certain that the people will see a certain fact. A son, a son honors his father and a servant his master. And then God makes clear to people, to the people, through his next questions, that he is a father to his people. He is their master. And then jumping ahead to the end of the chapter, God will also call himself their great king. God is father. God is master. God is great king. And knowing those truths, truly knowing them, 
should make all the difference in the way God is treated by his people in their worship. To say God is father means he is fatherly in the perfect sense of what fatherhood means. He provides those who are his children with their every need. He loves his children with a perfect love. He disciplines his children with a firm and corrective hand, yet always, always for their good. God, our Father, protects, he guides, he tenderly shepherds his children as well as rebukes them when that is what they need the most. So erase every thought in your minds of the fallibilities that still exist even as you consider the best of human fathers and understand that the fatherhood of God is so much better. Powerful, wise, and most caring. That is the fatherhood of God. And this God is also the most benevolent of masters. We as as human beings start thinking of a master-servant relationship and our vision is so clouded by the oppressive conduct of human beings. We think of master and servant and we often think of the wrongs of certain human masters. We start becoming aware of sins like man-stealing and an involuntary servitude and the harsh, domineering cruelty that is often associated with a human master's evilness. But again, you have to shift your thoughts away from such horrid images to instead consider God. He has all authority, the authority of our master, cloaked in the greatest of kindness. Think of God who uses his high place of authority as master while always, always seeking his servant's good. In the same vein, you could think of God as as your great king. And again, our views will be colored by human kingship gone wrong. We think of tyrants instead of benevolent rulers. As a people who are a part of a democratic republic, we think of kings and envision heavy-handedness. But again, this is the only true and righteous God. And as the great king, he rules this universe that he has made and crafted, He holds everything in it together, but again, not for evil, but for the abundant good of his people. He rules for the good of his people. Father, master, king, they are designations that suggest authority. But when they are applied to the authority of God, it is a type of authority that we should desire to have over us, long to have over us, in submission to him, Our every need will be met. And all of what I have just said is encompassed in the words of God by which he is describing himself. He is the perfect father. He is the great master. He is the great king as well as our Lord. And even our best perceptions of what those words mean when applied to God, well, they still fall short of all his true excellencies. So, will you show honor to this great father? Will you show honor to this wonderful master? Do you show honor to your divine king? Or will you instead put polluted food upon his altar and offer him animals that are blind or lame or sick? God 
magnifies for us who he is and who he has been to his people. And at the same time, he lays forth accusations against the Old Testament church in the closing days of the Old Testament prophets during which Malachi writes. The people through the priest are bringing blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not evil? They offer to God what is lame or sick. Is that not evil? By the conduct of the people through the priests, they are polluting the Lord's table. And perhaps what is said in verse 8 shows the greatest extent of how extreme this disregard towards God is. There we discover that the people would give to God blemished creatures that they would not even dare to give to their own human authority ruling over them, their governor. Just think about that for a moment. We can so easily imagine the mindset of that like that in our modern times. If any of us were invited to dine with the governor of this state, none of us would prepare, prepare for that event by going to our laundry pile to pull out our dirtiest of clothes our damaged and our stained work pants to dress for a state leader. We see a human being who has been given authority over a group of people, and we seem to be more open to give him or her greater honor than we would our God. Now, I would ask that you please don't read too much into what I just said. I'm not claiming tuxes and gowns need to be worn to worship. But I am saying that when we come before our God, come before our Father, come before our Master, come before our King, we should have a mindset that wishes to see Him glorified and not humiliated. And our conduct in worship should in some way show forth the mindset we should have in light of who God is. And that conduct should be showing a greater esteem for God than we would ever show for any of our fellow human beings. The error among Malachi's contemporary, it involves a spiritual numbness in regard to God. But part of that spiritual numbness is also related to a spiritual blindness as to who they really are. God did choose Israel. He chose them to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the world. But he chose them not because they were more numerous and mightier, he chose them from among the least. Israel's only real worth is enveloped in God's worth. And greater value seen in God's chosen only exists because they are chosen. His children, his servants, his subjects. And yet they bring their pollution to his altar. They are claiming they are greater they have a greater importance than their God. You see, their conduct toward God in worship is showing that these people, what these people are doing in their Old Testament means of worship is devaluing God. And they're overvaluing self. After all, who would keep the, bless, the best of the flock for himself while God is given the worst? Who would retain the healthiest of the herd when God is given the sick? it would be the one who is placing himself above his God. Whoever would say, this sick animal I will offer to God 
devalues God. And whoever does that in order to keep the healthy creature for himself is always overvaluing himself. And again, this attitude towards God and the esteem for self is one being exhibited in the corporate worship of the people of God. The people have devalued God in their worship, devalued him in their, in their character, in the degree of excellence they bring to him in worship. And again, the devalue of him in worship is in many ways only the outward manifestation of an inward state of depraved heart. And my friends, I can't say such things like that without also reminding you of some of the things I said last week. The more immediate first audience to whom God writes through Malachi, they're very much a people like us. They're not the outsiders. They are not a people cut off from God's Old Testament church. Though they are people living amidst a people who don't know God, they are still people going to worship. And in those ways, they are people very much like the church today. And because we have those commonalities with them, we should hear these words from Malachi and be asking ourselves, how do they apply to us? And we also need to do that knowing that Malachi's word is God's word. This prophet is God's spokesman speaking God's truth. And because this is God's word, we should ask ourselves even more. How is the truth of God written through the prophet applying to us? I suggested to you all last week that Malachi very much is writing a prophecy that would challenge us in our life practices especially as people belonging to God through Jesus Christ. Are you challenged? Are you challenged at all by the words of Malachi today? Let me make it even more personal. In your worship, in this church, in our corporate worship as a church community, are we devaluing God in our worship? And overvaluing self? When I read Malachi, and when I think of the modern church, I start wondering how it has come about that the worship of God very nearly seems to have taken a back seat to self-adoration. Isn't it apparent sometimes that in many a church, the most prominent theme in the way worship is approached is by asking, what will move the people to an emotional high? Without asking, what will bring the greatest honor to God? We live in an era in which there seems to be often a consumeristic approach to worship. But we even need to be more personal than that. And I say that because in a church like this one, even by identifying what we call a consumer approach to worship, we can fall into a trap of being critical of others rather than looking at our own worship. 
We don't today bring blemished animals before God to be offered in our worship. We don't because Christ, the perfect sacrifice, has shed his own perfect blood to finally and permanently allow us as God's people to constantly draw near to him. But, but are we drawing near to God and offering him our best? I have to remind you of Romans 12 again. As a Christian, you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In your corporate worship, dear friend, are you presenting your body in a holy and sacrificial way acceptable to God? Or are you listening half-heartedly? Are you singing by muttering? Am I preaching to get the job done? Or with every effort to honor God with his word spoken back to him? Beloved, God has ordained his worship. He has given us instruction as to how he is to be worshiped. He is worthy of everything we can give. But are we like the Israelites in Malachi's day, giving him our second best? I thank God that my salvation has been fully accomplished by Jesus Christ. Because my worship will never be worshipful enough. But even as I say that, I also pray. I pray that more and more and more the worship of God in this church will be a worship with hearts filled with desires to see God honored as preeminent. May it be so. And it really needs to be so. It needs to be so because we see so well in this passage that God's critique of his people in worship is also laced with warnings of what a weak quality of worship suggests. Our feeble worship can be so symptomatic of a problem from within in regard to the desire to honor the only God that it could result in God saying something like he does in verse 14. Cursed. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Cursed be the cheat. That is God's word to one who is withholding from God what God has ordained for him in worship. Honor to him. And then God says as well in verse 10, Oh, that there were one, one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Can you imagine God saying something like that to us? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of Black Hills Community Church so that you might not worship me in vain. I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept your worship. May it never be. May it never be. It is our great privilege to be able to gather freely to worship our God. 
But when the heart goes out of worship, because the heart grows hard against God, the danger is always there that a visible church can be cut off from God's true people, cut off from God himself. And do you know that that is really historically what happened to the people to whom Malachi first wrote? Can I remind you again of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans, in Romans chapter 11? Paul there likened the New Testament church to an olive tree. And he described many of the Jewish people of the New Testament era, those who had not accepted Jesus as being branches, like branches cut off from the tree. They were cut off from the root of the patriarchs of the true Israel of God. Their failure to accept and worship the Son of God meant a hardening among Israel so that but for a remnant, God had for a time shut the door and they're in complete worship. Now, of course, there was a benefit to the nations because of that cutting off because the branches were cut off. They were cut off, but branches of the nation were grafted in. But Paul, remember, also warned Christians in the New Testament church in the same part of that Roman letter that what had happened to the Jewish people could also happen to them. They could be cut off too. We have to know that for the true people of God, there will never, ever truly be a time when they are fully and finally severed away from God. But whenever our heart for God grows weary, whenever our desire to worship becomes weariness, so that we snort at the worship of God, the visible church, the church that is seen in the world, can be cut off entirely. Think of the the many closed doors of the architecturally great but now barren churches of Europe. And also there is a warning here also for the invisible church, for the true people of God. If their worship becomes shallow, if that happens, they might undergo the disciplining hand of God that could leave them in an unworshipful state for a temporary time. These words of Malachi, they are so weighty. They could almost be unbearable for us to hear. But there are gems of mercy laced within God's accusations and warnings. For one thing, despite all these words of gloom and doom in regard to there being a spiritual numbness in regard to the worship of God, Malachi also makes clear that the worship of God in this fallen world will never grow completely and forever silent. Verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, God's name, will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name, God's name, with a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And there is even more. There's more we also see here that God remains merciful whenever it is that the fervor of our worship of him becomes cold and dim. Look at what God also says in verse 9. 
after having already condemned a people's worship, God's word through his messenger says to people weary in worship, a symptom of having that weary heart towards God, that they are still implored to entreat, that is to plead to God for the favor of God. Entreat the favor of God that he might be gracious to us. What a promise of grace that is. No matter how spiritually numb our worship might get, no matter how far we have strayed from God's commands for our worship, no matter how much we have snorted and displeased our God, his grace still abounds. And when we implore him for his grace, his grace received, my friends, will in turn be what will make our worship more alive. His grace empowers worship because grace received enables us by the blood of Christ to gain true access to God by the new and living way, Jesus himself. And when that happens, we worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. It is Jesus who brings us near to God. It is Jesus who presents our souls to God. It is Jesus who will bring us home to God and who has secured our way to God. And he thus enables our worship to be a worship of God in spirit and in truth. May our worship never grow cold. And if it ever does, may we turn to the one who makes our worship alive. Jesus Christ to the glory of our God and Father, through the gift of the Son, as we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to give to him the honor that he is due. Amen. If you would, please pray with me. Our God and Father, we... Come again and ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for any time we have failed to give you the honor that you are owed by your creatures. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for any way that we have ever profaned your worship. We ask, Lord, that you would make us a people mindful of how you are to be honored and how we are enabled to honored because of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we have set before us a table. Elements are on the table. There is bread, there is grape juice, there is wine. And it reminds us of the work of Jesus Christ. Without his work, we would forever be separated from you. Because of his work, we are brought near to you. And so, Lord, as we are brought near to you by the blood of Jesus Christ, we ask that it would empower our worship. And so, Lord, as we part, uh, prepare to partake of the elements of this meal, we ask that we would be mindful of what it is saying to us about how great you are, how merciful you are, how just you are. And we pray, Lord, that it would be as if we are spiritually being lifted to the heavens to be in your presence. 
Lord, may our partaking of the sacrament be a worshipful act. May our partaking of the sacrament be something which will glorify your most holy name. Lord, we are so in need of Christ. In need of him when we err, when we fail to do what we ought. In need of him because even when what we do, when we do it well, is but our duty. So Lord, make it so that we always remember Christ and that his sacrifice would be at the heart of what empowers the worship of your people. May it be so. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let me read to you.